All right, good morning. We come upon our final sermon in the series of Hebrews. And so this is where we come to an end on this very long, but I believe it was a good journey for all of us. Uh, Let's turn to then um, Hebrews 13. But before that, let me pray for us as we begin. Almighty God, we lift this time up to you, remembering your goodness, your faithfulness, your steadfast love, especially through this sermon series of teaching us and guiding us. We ask God that what you have planted would now come to bear fruit in our lives, 30, 60, 100 fold. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 25. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 25. You can find it on page 949 if you have a pew Bible. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings, Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We started many, many months ago, many moons ago, with us learning that Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. He is in the order of the high priest Melchizedek. In fact, he is our high priest. He is the one that ushers in this new covenant that when we become received by grace, by the sprinkling of his blood, we can now enter the presence of God freely and forever. And now what do we do with this knowledge? What do we do now that we know who Jesus Christ is? And chapter 13 is about how we Worship God. How do we worship God? If you know who Jesus Christ is now, how do you worship Him? I think that's a very good question, very important one that we've been going over the last two weeks as we've gone over chapter 13. And now we come to this final portion. And if you have your Bibles, you may have had this little header that says benediction. This benediction, however, is not a complete separate prayer. It's not just all of a sudden he stops and says, you know what, let me just give the benediction to close it off. This benediction is connected to the previous verse with the word de in Greek, or it's a conjunction, and. It's translated as now. So the first word that you see here is now, but its use is a conjunction to connect verses even 18, 19, and even the prior verses to now this benediction. 
So there is a request for prayer that we heard before as we worship God and he's telling us how to worship, how to love our neighbor, how to open our lips and with the fruit of our lips praise God. These are things that Christians do. And now he connects it saying, and, and then the benediction comes. So there is a request for prayer. Please pray for us. Please pray for your leaders. And immediately following that request is an actual prayer. So he prays after asking for prayer. And so this entire chapter I want us to recognize is tied together. And this portion here, the, one, the benediction that we've read, isn't just some liturgical expression that you are compelled to do. It's an appeal that is tied with and connected with worship as well. In fact, that's the point of this entire final chapter. Again, once you understand who Jesus is, what he did, how he brought forth the new covenant, is eternally high priest for us, the author of our salvation, who brings us close to him, stirring us up to do good works, to bring us to a proper place of worship. And so what is it that we are to do? How are we supposed to respond in this final, final words that we're given in this book? And so that's what we need to understand. He's giving us, in even the benediction, what worship is. What is worship? Worship is a, number one, worship is a response. When you worship, you are responding. And your attitude, the way you present yourself, how you sing, how you listen, how you read, how you put it in your heart, the Word of God, is a response. What God revealed to you, you are now to respond, and that's worship. He revealed to us who He is. How do you not respond? So we do respond. We respond in worship. Number two, worship is a duty. We owe God worship. To keep worship from God is to hold back what He is due. You may have heard that Jesus Christ is Savior. Yes, He is our Savior, but there's also the second part to that phrase, that Christian phraseology, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and He is Lord. He is not just our Lord, which is true. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of all creation. And He is due worship. And number three, worship is a privilege. We get to worship the true God truly through Jesus Christ. So there are three things that we ought to understand about worship that we are shown here in this broad theme. And number one is worship is a response, worship is a duty, and worship is a privilege. Because why? The Christian's life is a life of worship. The Christian's life is a life of worship. Whatever we do, it's a life of worship. We are responding to the revelation God's given us. It's a duty for us to give Him worship, and we understand it's a privilege. No matter what, no matter what. Some of us went to a far state, a dangerous state, I heard, to run a few miles. But even that, what we need to understand, all these things 
for the Christian is an act of worship. You either do it to glorify yourself or to glorify your maker. And so what have you done when you were there? That's the question, because for the Christian, that's the challenge, but that's the privilege. That's the knowledge that we start to get. What did we do when we were there? What did you think about? How do we respond to the things that God has given us? And so when we worship God, and you hold these three things, these are very basic things, this shouldn't blow anyone's mind, there is something that happens to the believer. When you worship God, like when you come into this place of solemn worship, you also are taught. If you look at these verses, there is a teaching. You are taught about the character of God, the nature of who God is. Look at this verse that we've just read. Worship also teaches the believer. There's another thing that worship does. Worship also stirs up the believer and empowers the worshiper to do the things that they need to do. So worship teaches, worship stirs up, worship empowers. And then because of those things, we are brought back into what? Another state of worship. Worship does these things to us, and we are brought back into another state of worship. This is not just simply a circular or a cyclical thing that's happening to the believer. It is a step-by-step progression. It's not like you learn one thing, and then you're like, that's the exact same thing. You move on from the basics of 2 plus 2 to now quadratic equations to now understanding limits and and other equations that you learn in math, I think. You learned that in pre-cal, at least, I think. But you learn about all these things because these step-by-step progressions you get to see is a constant elevation. We call that sanctification. We call that God bringing us toward himself. Don't you get it? The closer you get to God in worship, the more you see who God is. I can see you from far away. And I can love you for who you are. I can be like, that person is very good looking far away. But then you get closer, and then you see even more things, more dimensions, more characteristics about the person that you come closer in contact with. That's what worship does. Worship brings us to God. There is a step-by-step constant elevation for the worshiper being brought closer to God. You get to see who God is, and you are also changed by that knowledge. Whether you realize it or not, Every Sunday when we gather, every time you open the Word and the Holy Spirit gives you understanding, you are also changed. You are also being brought into a place of not just simple understanding, but a place of worship. And so what do we see here? There is a first title that we see from the conjunction. And that is God is a God of peace. Especially in today's day, I think we need to understand this more deeply and meditate on what it means that God is a God of peace. God being a God of peace is not a designation that we actually see in the Old Testament. It is a Christian coinage to understand that God is a God of peace because of what has been revealed through Jesus Christ. God is the God of peace Christians understood this, that God is the source, He is the originator, but He is also the giver of peace. So there's two things about peace that the Christian understands. God is a God 
that is the source of peace, and God is the God who gives peace. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Christ says, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let, your, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God is the source, but God is also the giver. The source is not of this world. This is a peace that the world cannot give. No matter how much the world thinks that it can achieve this kind of peace, the Bible shows us that it cannot get it because the source is not of the world. The source is of God. And that's what's given then. What have we been given? We've been given the peace of God. The people of the new covenant, the disciples of Jesus Christ, the church has been given the peace of God. This is phenomenal. This is incredibly deep. It's something that we ought to meditate on. It's something that we understand in the Reformed worship tradition, meaning biblical worship tradition. And some of you may remember this. I even tried this many years ago, and then I took it out. But it's called the passing of the peace. I don't know if you remember, but it was maybe five or six years ago. We did have this. And I took it out. The reason why I took it out is because I needed to do a teaching first. Because we would say, let's pass the peace of Christ to one another. And then people would just turn around and give each other fist bumps and say, what's up, bro? How's it going? I'm good. I'm duty. Whatever it is, right? And then people would say these things. But this is actually a biblical terminology that we are incorporating in worship when we say things like we are going to pass the peace of God. First of all, what do you pass if you don't have it? So there's a faith element involved. There's something, again, that the world cannot give that you have been given through Jesus Christ. And now that you have been given this, you pass it. Where do we see that? We actually see that also, not just here, but in Romans chapter 15, verse 33, where Paul says, May the God of peace be with you all. And then he ends it by saying, Amen. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So traditionally, the church has said, The peace of the Lord be with you as a greeting. The peace of the Lord be with you. And the other person receiving that would also respond by saying, And also with you. It's more than simply a colloquial greeting. Hi, how's it going? It's more than that. It comes from an understanding that because we have been given this peace, something that the world longs for, by the way, but doesn't know how to get it, what are the solutions that are being proposed now to end strife, to end war, to end conflict? Why do you think they don't work? Because it's of the world. So a true and lasting peace how do we get it? It's from God outside the world. And now that we have this eternal and true, lasting peace, we can extend it to others around us. It's an amazing thing. I told you, it's something that we can think about for a long time, even more than just one sermon. But just quickly moving on, that's why the Christian would think twice about causing strife or division, especially in the body of Christ. How can you, after you shared the peace of God with one another, cause division, cause strife? 
It's a very deep and powerful gesture in our biblical and Reformed tradition. And then you think about it even more. Would you not offer peace to someone that the Lord has forgiven? Let's say you have something that you don't actually like about someone else. Maybe you don't like people in general. I don't know, whatever the case may be. Would you not offer to someone the peace of God that the Lord has forgiven? You know who that person is? That person is the person that Jesus Christ shed his blood for. How can you still hold a grudge? How can you withhold peace? Understanding that. There is a deep understanding that comes from knowing that God is a God of peace and that we offer it to one another. Now that I've said this, I thought maybe we can practice it. Maybe we could finally bring it into our worship. There have been many people that said to me, when are we going to bring back the peace, passing of the peace? And I, I said, as soon as I give the teaching, and we are finally here at this finish line with this teaching. So the minister will come up and he will say, the peace of the Lord be with you. And then how do you respond? You would respond by saying, and also with you. And then the minister will say, and now let us pass the peace of Christ to one another. It's exciting now, isn't it? Your heart's beating. You haven't talked to someone next to you in years, maybe, in our worship service. But this is the Reformed biblical tradition. This is what Christians did for 2,000 years. They were passing the peace of Christ. And this is what we also get to do. It's an exciting thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a faith thing. We do it in faith. So let's start. The peace of the Lord be with you. Let us now pass the peace of Christ to one another. And so you pass it right now. That's good. I think we're a good, reformed, uh, very, very nice biblical congregation. Usually congregations like this stop after about 30 seconds, which is which is what I see here. 30 seconds a minute, that's what you do. But now that you pass the peace, what does the God of peace do? What does that peace do for you? How do you understand this? What does the God of peace do? And we continue on with this benediction. Remember, worship is an action, but it's also something that teaches us. So, What does this benediction teach us? What does the God of peace do? And we continue on. Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, when there is some grammatical structure in the Greek, in Hebrews, we have found that every single structure that we have come upon is not by just mere coincidence or happenstance. He just doesn't write things willy-nilly. There is a purpose behind it. He's always calling back to something. And in fact, in the benediction is almost a pinnacle of his writing style, his speaking style. Every single line is actually calling back to something. So we may, we may first at first glance see it as a simple benediction, but every single line is calling back to something. What is this calling back to? And it's especially um, clear if you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's calling back to Isaiah 63, 11 to 14. And I'm going to read it for us. You can turn with me if you'd like. Isaiah's smack in the middle of your Bible. But 
Isaiah chapter 63, 11 to 14, this is what it says. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Just a little context, this is about the Exodus. This is the, the biggest event in Jewish history. So this is talking about the Exodus. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses to divide the waters before them, to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now in the Septuagint and in the Hebrew, in fact, even if you read it in the Hebrew, there is a translation part here in verse 11. It says, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? It's actually singular. In the Hebrew, the Masoretic text that we have translated for us, it can go both ways, singular or plural. But if you look at the Septuagint, it's clearly singular. So you would see it as, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? And this is the language that is being used because he calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. But before that, he uses the exact same wordage. Uh, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? The exact same verse. He brought again. That's how it's translated here. From the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. So now what you see in this benediction is this correlation, this parallel from the Exodus to the resurrection. The Exodus actually points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the benediction that he is giving his listeners, the church. God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. He saved them. God brings up Jesus out of the land of the dead. That's what we mean when we say Hades. The land of the dead, and he is the shepherd that leads his flock. He is the great shepherd of sheep. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing to is culminated, is finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He leads up, brings up. As Moses would lead the people up out of Egypt, God leads Jesus up out of the grave, the land of Egypt, the land of the dead. It's showing us what? That the redemptive act of God, both in the Old and New Testament, is something that only He can do. It's God who leads His covenant people up out of the land of the dead. And here we actually see something that we have not seen before in the entire book. The highest designation is given to Jesus. He is called Kyrios. It has not been given to him before, but in this benediction, he adds Lord Jesus, because that's who he is. He is the great shepherd who is the Lord. And it occurs here only in Hebrews, or occurs only, only here in Hebrews. And that designation is given to our Lord Jesus because we are to notice the weight, how emphatic it is to understand who Jesus Christ is and who we are in relation to the Most High God. 
That's an incredible thing to just know in one line how he calls back even to Isaiah 62 and understanding that we are a people now in Jesus Christ. How? We continue on. By the blood of the eternal covenant. We have a new covenant. It's referred to here as the eternal covenant. Again, this is not by coincidence. It's not just haphazardly. He just put in words together. It's this understanding that we get. We are people of the new covenant causally by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there is a construction here again. Where is this construction leading us back to? The grammatical construction is identical to Zechariah chapter 9, 11. It says, Zechariah in chapter verse, uh, verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you is the exact same Greek Greek phraseology, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This grammatical construction is exactly the same except for one thing. What's that one thing? It's the insertion of the word eternal. Eternal is put in there. By the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, there is an establishment of the new covenant. Christ now binds us to God, sanctifies us by the sprinkling of his blood, and we are made clean. The blood sprinkled in the new covenant is different from the blood sprinkled in the former covenant. Why? Because of that one word, eternal. The new covenant is the promised eternal covenant. The new, new covenant isn't some temporary or another provisional covenant until another one comes. There's nothing that comes after because this is the eternal covenant. The new covenant is God's final and most costly forgiveness that is offered to people. It doesn't condone us in our sin, obviously, but it fully cleanses us and brings us into the presence of a holy and righteous God. The new covenant is what we have as Christians. And so who is the Lord Jesus? He is the one that establishes the new covenant, the eternal covenant, and is now leader, the shepherd of the sheep, who all would be worshipers of God. We belong to the great shepherd, and we are bonded to him by this eternal covenant. Nothing will ever break the eternal covenant that we have with God. Nothing, because it's what Jesus Christ has accomplished for all eternity. We'll go on. What does this God do now, right? Verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those that are in the covenant community get to live lives that are now pleasing to God. Once we were enemies, once all the things that we did, we did in rebellion against him. But now we get to live lives that are pleasing to him. He is the one, the author of our salvation. He's the one that makes us complete. He does this how? By equipping us. Equipping us with everything good. He equips us for every good work. Think about the force now. Now that we spent some time on this first verse in chapter 20, think about the force that is equipping you, equipping the church 
This is the God is now going to equip you with every good thing that you can do His will. Now, what we understand is this kind of endowment, this kind of equipping is required to do the will of God. Without it, we cannot do the will of God. The disciple of Christ comes to this understanding and must come to this understanding that God's will being done is the best thing that you could ever do, but you need God's help to do it. It's a joyful privilege to come alongside in prayer for God's will to be done. It's, in fact, in the prayer our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, when you're a child, you may not fully understand why you have to follow the will of the parent. You'll complain, you'll rebel, maybe you'll throw tantrums. If you're like my daughter, you'll just scream right back at you, right? But as time goes on, and this is your hope, as your child grows in wisdom, you hope that they will see why the parents, especially if you had wise parents, said the things that they did. Now we need to understand that God is infinitely more wise, infinitely more wise. As you mature, how much more would you want to do the will of God? And then how marvelous is it that God will equip us to do it? It's one thing to know what you want or need. It's another thing to be able to acquire it. You can know that you need a glass of water, and yet it is in arm's reach, but you're behind you know, a set of bars, you're in prison, you can't reach it. It's one thing to know that you want it, to see it, but it's another thing to acquire it. And this is what God is saying. He will equip us. He will equip you. You will acquire it. I was talking with a brother uh, yesterday morning, and he actually shared his frustration about how Jews and Muslims and Christians are so close in their faith, so to speak, in some of the things that we believe. It's frustrating, though, because while it's so close, it can be so far away. In America, we have a saying, close but no cigar. Not that we all should smoke cigars. I'm nothing against it. But there is a reason why that, word, that phrase came about. It's because when you play a carnival game or a game, you would have to hit the mark. If you hit the mark, you get the cigar. But if you don't hit the mark, no cigar, no prize. So you could be close, but no cigar. And now we've just used that idiom over and over again. People don't know why. If you miss the mark, you starve. It doesn't matter how close you get is the point. But it's Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. What that means is he hit the mark. He hit barbecue sauce. That's bullseye, it's a brand. Anyway, but, and that's the perfect life that he imputes to us. That means he makes the mark. We are given account of that perfect life through his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood and his resurrection. We are given this status. So now we can do what pleases God because it is God who equips us. And what is pleasing to God will be accomplished, accomplished through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the mediator of grace 
and the power of God for those in the new covenant. That's what we've been given. That's the benediction. What a great benediction, huh? And then to end it, there is a doxology. A doxology is a hymn of praise. And Christians have put at the end of benedictions and prayers, even the Lord's Prayer has a doxology at the end of it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's a doxology. A doxology adds richness to our worship. But more importantly, a doxology brings us back to a theocentric, a God-centered understanding. A God-centered heart and expression, worship. And that's the final word or the sentence of this benediction. It's a doxology. It brings us back to God. And the final word of this sermon or letter is probably the only adequate word for this text. It's the word amen. In Greek, amen, or we say amen. We sing it at the end of the Gloria Patri. We say it at the end of the Apostles' Creed. We say it at the end of the Lord's Prayer and so on. So what does amen or amen or amen mean? Number one, it means that we understand that what has been just said is tying us to the truth. We are tied to the truth when we say amen. When we say amen as the people of God, we go back even to Old Testament times when we say all truth is God's truth. We are amening all of God's truth. And number two, we agree with it. So it ties us to the truth. Number two, we agree with it when we say amen. I've heard in my lifetime some ridiculous calls to say amen. People would say really, really not good things and they would just say as a joke, amen, <laughs> and they think that that would be funny which will be an exception for us not to say amen. But by saying amen, however, we connect ourselves with the covenant people of the past, with one another, and we give glory to God because we are agreeing with it. In the Bible, we usually see doxologies that have an ending with amen. Even in Romans chapter 1, it's not the end of Romans, but in Romans chapter 1, 24, 25, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So he amens that because that's a doxology. And so the book effectively ends with this word, amen. And this is what I hope our lives can also end with. I hope our lives, till our final breath, we can be living lives of amen to finally also say, amen. I am connected with God for all eternity, and I agree with it. Now from verses 22 to 25, it's actually a postscript. They're like the postmarks. They are brief personal marks that a writer would just write at the end of a manuscript because usually they will be a scribe, right? Transcribing the things that they heard from the author, but then he would write his own note. That's what a postscript is. And so here we see something of that nature. And in a postscript, like any other letter, they're not necessarily the same subject, but they nonetheless communicate from the author what he believes the recipients 
need to hear or would want to hear. So here's the first one. He urges and appeals that the church listen to what was written. It was brief, 13 chapters. And you're like, 13 chapters is brief. It's brief. Trust me. If you understand anything about a pastor's heart, they always want to convey more, but they don't. Maybe I want to say, so there was a brother here. I wanted to tell this brother five things, at least five things. I couldn't. I didn't have the time. Maybe not even his attention. So I just said one thing. I said to him, I need you to be a man. That's it. That's all I said. I need you to be a man. But he understood the multiple dimensions that it meant. It was meant as an encouragement. It was meant as an exhortation. It was meant as a warning. It was meant as all those things. And sometimes things are said, but all these other things want to be conveyed. So then he urges the people to pay attention. I appeal to you. Pay attention. What I wrote here briefly. There's a heart there that is conveyed by the pastor. And then he talks about Timothy, a known disciple and traveling companion of Paul, right? He is now in prison and released. What does that mean? That means it's good news for the church, and they should hope to see both the author of Hebrews and Timothy soon. And so these are things that we get to see in this final postmarks. You can see that he really does care about the church. He doesn't just have to say it. He doesn't just have to preach it or write it. He really does care about it. It comes from the leaders. It comes from people around us. When we understand who God is and the peace that we get to offer, the love that we get to show, the worship that we get to give, there is a true more than just camaraderie. There is a deep connection with every believer, so much so that you long to be with them. He longed to be reunited with the church of Hebrews. He would even say, the people of Italy say hi. Say hi in Italian, you know, that kind of thing. He's like, they wanted to see each other because they were people, brothers and sisters of Christ. And I read this postmark, and I consider ourselves incredibly fortunate. Aren't we so blessed? Because we are a family of Christ that when we would miss or long for each other, we can just come together here. We can call each other up. We can invite each other to lunches, dinners, birthday parties, and whatnot. And we can worship together. We can stir one another up to love and good works. And we are able to do it so often. What a blessing we have in our church. I pray that you don't take this gift of being able to gather for granted. And I pray that this will also just be the beginning for our church. If you've been with me through Hebrews, you understand the author never slowed down. He was always, always gaining momentum and going faster and faster, deeper and deeper to the very last chapter, to the very last words of his letter. Almost as if to convey to us that we must too, we too must also see this not as a final point, but a launching point. We have to see that this is where we need to continue on with that same speed and with the same trajectory that the author has pointed us to, to grow in our worship and do the will of God as his covenant people. So this is my prayer for us. Let us continue to worship God, who is to be blessed forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. The revelation of who you are to us. The blessings that you pour down upon us. We pray that we would now be able to respond, that we would be able to grow, and that we would truly be able to reflect in our lives worship that is pleasing to you with our every breath. Let's take this time to pray. And like we have learned to meditate, go over the depth of the goodness of what we have been given in Jesus Christ. And let's worship him with our lips, with our minds, with our bodies and souls. Let's pray.